Next year's pensions conference is in fact going to form part of the uh, annual um, the colloquium that uh, is going to be held. I don't know if you've seen the announcement, but um, between the 2nd and the 5th of April of 2019, uh, the, various pension, sorry, the various sections of the IAA are going to uh, join and, and we'll have a, a joint colloquium. Um, and the pensions conference will feature as part of that joint colloquium. Um, uh, the various sections that are involved are the, the PBSS, the Pension Benefits and Social Security section, the, the Health section, um, Aston, uh, the IACA, the Consulting Actuaries uh, section, and IAA Life section. Um, they will all be uh, combining forces to have a, a joint colloquium next year. It's going to be held in Cape Town. Um, it would be wonderful to have strength in numbers, and so um, uh, you're invited to, well, you, you, you're being asked um, to start looking at that and making arrangements to get yourselves down to Cape Town and attend that, um, that session. I think it'll be, it'll be excellent. It'll also uh, offer you an opportunity to meet some of your peers from across the globe uh, who will be attending, attending the session. Um, we're now getting into the meat of the technical part of the program. Um, a significant number of South African retirees retire using living or drawdown annuities. This is an area where practitioners such as ourselves need to concern ourselves more on, and in particular help members achieve the maintenance of their standard of living into their retirement on a sustainable basis. Many prior studies have investigated correlations between the sustainability of living annuities and various factors relating to the construction of the investment portfolios as well as income drawdown strategies. As part of the work conducted by our next speaker and his colleagues investigating these matters, they were able to quantify specific relationships between portfolio volatility and sustainable income draws. Our next speaker believes this has useful applications in areas such as annuity portfolio construction, as well as pricing of volatility smoothing products aimed at, pensions, at the pensions market. Please welcome Yaku Fantonda onto the stage. Yaku is Head of Advisor Services in South Africa at Investec Asset Management. Prior to moving into his role, Yaku was Sales Director for the South African Advisor Team and Head of Distribution for Investec Investment Management Services. Having previously worked at Sunlam, Yaku occupied various positions which included heading up the product development uh, for the Sunlam platform business Glacier from 2000 to 2003, as well as heading up the business development and distribution team from 2003 to 2009. He's a fellow of the Institute of Actuaries, holds a BSc Honours degree from the University of Stellenbosch. Thank you, Yaku. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'm always uh, concerned. I'm never sure. Initially, I was on the program for just after lunch, and now I see they moved me in just before lunch, and I'm not, not sure which one of the two is necessarily the better slot to have. Um, the, the, the introduction um, made the, the topic sound incredibly complicated, but if anything, uh, our, our objective here was to try and make things less complicated. Um, for my sins, I've grown up in the investments world, mostly the retail investments world. And so sitting here this morning at what essentially is my first ASA uh, retirement fund conference ever, even though I am for my sins a retirement fund trustee on some of our funds, made me realize how incredibly intertwined the future of what historically was the institutional pension fund industry and the retail savings industry, how our futures are one and how we are all struggling with different sides of the same coin. I couldn't help but sniggle when I heard about the challenges expressed earlier in getting DC funds to produce valuation certificates. I mean, the funds on which I am 
a trustee, which are all retail funds, which we own the admin, everything of, we have weekly reconciliations down to the last cent on the valuations. I can issue you a weekly valuation certificate for every one of those funds, and there's about 60 billion rands of assets in there. So, so we struggle with different sides of the same problems on, on both of the industries. And, and for me, it's no more clear than, than the topic we're going to be talking about today, which really is the living annuity debate. Now, by golly, has that become an interesting conversation. Uh, on the one hand, I am incredibly excited last year when I received a list of potential research topics for honors and master's level actuarial students from WITS as well as UCT. I was incredibly surprised to see a large amount of topic time dedicated towards investigating various issues pertaining to how people actually deal with their pension assets after retirement. In, a, in an immediate or guarantee annuity environment, that's not a problem. It's the, the person trusts an insurance company and they never worry about the money again. However, the era we live in today, globally, this has all changed. Um, and it hasn't, and I think that the, the fact that it's changed in the UK with their version of pensions freedom has really caused a barrage of research into the area of how do you manage drawdown annuities. And there are loads of different parameters here which I'm not going to go into all of them. Um, my idea was to highlight some of the results that we've, um, that we've gotten, which many of it won't surprise you and will confirm some of the work that you might have done yourself. And right at the end, there was a surprising result, which is really actually the, the, the aim of, of the presentation today. So the, 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 the discussion we're going to have, um, I'm going to give some background information uh, trying to sort of draw the parallel between where we are, where we've been, and where we're trying to go in this space where we're helping people manage their pension assets better. Um, I'll share with you briefly just around how we model living annuities and the options in that regard, and how we were surprised to find that even fairly simplistic living annuity options are incredibly accurate if what you're trying to measure is the persistency and the probabilities of failure or success. Um, then I'll share exactly the meat of one of the results, which deals with the relationship between volatility, and I'll talk around all the drivers on, on living annuities and, and some of the academic work that's been happening on the space in the UK and the US as we speak. And then we'll talk briefly about the applications of how these things might or might not be useful. Okay, so let's get let's into the background. The first one is that um, in South Africa, especially at the, uh, at the normal ASSA convention, the last number of years there have been a quite a number of really good quality research papers that have all really dived into this reality that the solution for a person retiring with a pot of money from a DC scheme is not either a guarantee annuity or a drawdown annuity, which is the international sort of research term for a living annuity. So it's not either or, it's some combination of both. And there's been a lot of work investigating the supply side problems that we have in solving that challenge. Part of the work that was just discussed now by the previous speaker talks to that same problem. We don't have proper paper with which to even do decent inflation-linked annuities in South Africa. Um, and, and the selfie development, again, in this space, it's all supply-side work focusing on how we can get the best blend between leaving people to their own devices and giving them some level of protection and longevity guarantees. And that work has to continue. The reality is that the developments in this space is 
miles away from where the real world exists today. And, and the real world exists where people are retiring today with inadequate pots of money, and those monies are being channeled mostly into living annuity products, and a number of key, key errors are being made in the process. So, so I guess my contention or my starting point is this is the long-term story. This we've got to get right, and there's a lot of supply-side work that's got to happen there. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we sit with an existing problem that's going to be with us for a fair amount of time. Now, the main issues, and, and I say what, what, what we list here, I mean, this is based on some analysis on, on the Investec Living Annuity Book, which is about a 50 billion rand living annuity book, with the oldest pensioner in there having had an entry date of 1991. So it's a a nice big diversified book with a long run. And we can, we can really do some interesting comparisons. But if we look at that, it's quite clear to me that even today, when I look at recently taken out annuities for large lump sums, large being two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine million, not 100,000 or 200,000. So meaningful amounts of money, pots of money that makes you believe that this probably represents the bulk of someone's retirement assets and someone who had spent an inordinate amount of time saving this as well. What are we finding when we look at those? Well, on our book, we're finding that at least half of them start off their annuities with an income of over five. And I'll show you why that is a pivotal number. And it seems to be the same number that's coming out all over the world in independent academic papers into what represents a sustainable uh, income draw for a drawdown product over a roughly a 30-year period. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge we sit with is that uh, the average equity exposure in these annuities is only around 40%. Now I'll show you some work here why that is incredibly dangerous. That is too low. And it talks to many things that we do as we uh, channel people into the annuity stage in the last five years of their, their retirement fund. And it talks to perhaps the fact that target date funds are putting people in asset allocations, which arguably are not suitable for the types of income draws that they want. But we'll talk about that in a moment as well. And then the last thing we see is, I call it sequencing risk. I'm sure most of you are aware of it, of it which, which really talks to the fact that people can't choose when they retire. And if they retire in a really bad economic climate, that actually has, for an income product, a very big um, impact on the pensioner. So sequence risk is a problem. But I'm going to take a different spin on sequence risk, and I'll show you on the next slide. My concern around the sequencing risk is if I look at the implicit assumptions around investment returns that advisors are making when they're helping people construct their portfolios, we are operating in a market where the assumption is that balanced funds will continue to give us CPI plus 7, like, by the way, they have in the last 20 years. If you look at the average ASISA high equity style balanced funds, the returns after fees are in the region of CPI plus 6 to CPI plus 7.5 over a 20 year period. The challenge is that that is highly, highly exceptional. So pensioners today are facing a very real prospect that sequence risk for people retiring today is going to come back and bite them. And to my mind, it's no way better illustrated than this little graph, which the first time I drew this um, had me stare at the screen for about an hour. These data points come from, um, unfortunately the dates aren't that clear, but I'll explain to you. These come from the Dimson-Staunton data set, which is an academic index data set. 
um, uh, that is used internationally for longer-term return analyses and projections, uh, also known as the DMS dataset, goes back to about 1900. And all I did was I picked, because it's got a truckload of indices, many of you might be well au fait with the set, but it's got general indices that give you sort of um, investment performance indications for, let me put it that way, for your major asset classes. So I picked just a general average world equity, SA equity, SA bonds, and SA cash, which tends to be the bulk of what people in South Africa are invested in. And then what I proceeded to do was to work out 30-year rolling returns. 30-year rolling returns. So every dot that you see on any one of these lines represents a 30-year real growth experience for an investor who invested on that date. So at the bottom, you've got the start dates that start in 1900, and the last start date here is December 1987, which means our data set runs from 1987 to 2017, the last one. Every dot is one investor. So I'll just, I mean, you can stare at this in your own time later, but the fascinating thing is, just look at the SA equity line, which is this black line. If you invested in 1900 on the 1st of January, your 30-year SA equity return was just under CPI plus 8, but CPI plus 7.5. That's SA equity. If you waited merely eight years before you made that same investment, so you didn't invest in 1900, you invested in 1908, your real return was almost CPI plus 14. That is sequence of return risk. Now imagine doing a retirement plan for someone retiring in 1900 and then someone retiring in 1908. Do you think that they have by any means stretched of the imagination had similar retirement experiences? No, they didn't. They had dramatically different experiences. So the part that has me worried about this implicit assumption that we walk around with about CPI plus 7 on balance funds, so apologies, is look here at the end. Where are we? This is where we are the last 30 years since the late 80s. Look at the return numbers, real, very high. And so if you're an economist or you're someone who watches long-term trends, this type of graph makes you worried. Because essentially what you're seeing here is you're seeing that growth internationally and in South Africa follows a long 20 to 30 year cycle that is determined by the state of the global economy and the cycle that it goes through. Closed trade, open trade, war, peace. Those things we cannot pick, but it would appear that they can knock 5% out of your real return and you didn't make a single mistake. This is sequence of return risk, and this is the stuff which people who retire in annuities are going through. So if you were a betting man, and you looked, for example, at the bonds here at the bottom, the massive bond bull market that we've had in real terms in South Africa, the last time we had a bond bear market was over there. Look at what happened to real returns. So anybody who builds an inflation uh, return of CPI plus 7 into many of their investment projections are potentially going to be in for a surprise. But be that as it may, this is a bit of background as to why we are worried about the state of people's savings assets, what they're choosing to invest in, and, and more importantly, what the assumptions are that they're making about the returns they're going to be getting, because those assumptions drive people's behavior. And this really, if you're talking about a drawdown annuity, it's essentially this little circle. 
So people want an income that keeps broadly paced with some level of inflation. It's somewhere indexed. You've got your investment risks, your mortality risks, and your sequence of return risk. You've got to manage as the poor pensioner who's shouldering all of this. And then on top of that, you've got massive behavioral risks where people make substantial portfolio and income drawdown errors during times of stress. And I'll show you how especially these can be quite dangerous if you get them wrong. So our departure point when we, from Investec's perspective, did a bit of this research was really just to try and get this awareness out into the market, is to accept the fact that a large number of people today retire only in living annuities, and in the foreseeable future, until we are able to fix the supply side as an industry, most people will continue retiring in living annuity strategies. We absolutely need to make sure that they do a better job at the execution of those strategies. And so our research really was an objective to try and just generate awareness, which is why we had the objective to keep it simple and not make it overly complex. Because however much we like discussing matching up utility functions and, 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 and annuity with sustainable withdrawal rates when we're doing calculations and presenting at actuarial conventions, the reality is that the average consumer of those products has no idea. They're trying to fix two things, an asset allocation and a starting income level. And we need to help them in that decision. So that was our departure point. And as part of that, we, we found a couple of other interesting uh, matters which, which I will highlight as well. So uh, the key thing when trying to do any of these things, I realized and we all realized I think in this room, is drawdown products respond count quite counterintuitively to the levers. Um, and it's not always clear what happens when you change portfolio allocations or income drawdowns or income strategies. So you always need some type of a model. Now you can go overboard and have a massive model that is statistically uh, designed on the investment engine and tries to do everything as accurate as possible. We started there, but we very quickly realized, and I'll show you why, that's not necessary. You can get most of the good quality results with fairly simplistic modeling. So in our case, the model we ended up working with was one that used fixed 30-year terms for, for sake of simplicity, um, worked with the annual returns from that Dimson-Staunton data set that I had before. So we're using, um, we're using actual index data, um, the product advice fee stuff I've put in there for you for those who are interested. But the key thing is we tried both a number of statistical models as well as rolling 30-year periods from that Dimson-Staunton data set. Now, we know there are big autocorrelation concerns when you're using rolling annual 30-year periods. I'll show you now how little that matters when you're doing living annuity modeling. We were quite surprised. Irrespective of which statistical model we used or which actual real return data we used, when we calibrated them around two key parameters being real return and real standard deviation or real volatility, all of the modeling gives surprisingly similar results, which was the first thing that surprised us. You do not need a PhD level investment engine to get decent quality output regarding living annuities. So that was the investment engine. We then played a bit with income strategies, but I'm not going to talk about that a lot today. Um, and then defining success was really around maintaining some purchasing power over 30 years and not crashing the annuity. So that was the basics for the modeling. Um, and we can, you can are more than welcome to ask me any questions about these afterwards. 
um, because I'm sure some of you who love models would, would want to actually uh, dive into this. Please just don't ask me for the inverse of the eigenvalue of the optimization matrix because that wasn't done by me. All right. Then, the first really interesting thing, just to prove to you that actually it doesn't really matter how sophisticated your investment model is. All I did here was actually, I, I, I picked for you two really um, interesting options. The first one, uh, so what we're seeing here is starting incomes of annuities on the bottom axis and failure rates on the vertical axis. And, and pretty much whether you're using the actual DMS data set, the Dimson, Staunton, and Marsh data set, or you're using something as silly as a, a straightforward normal distribution with calibrated uh, parameters, look at the failure rates. They are essentially identical. So, so you can get a lot of the quality output by using a fairly simplistic model. You don't need a massively complex model. Annuities are sensitive to volatility and real return. 95% of what the behavior is in the long term ends up being explained by those two factors only. Real return, by the way, being incredibly important. So that was the first interesting one. And, and so if you, if you remember in my opening slide, why did I pick 5% as being the sort of danger zone where people should not be picking annuity incomes. Well, there you can see on the graph, that's where both of the models here very quickly escalate your failure rates into the 15 to 20% rate, which is unacceptable. Most international standards for acceptable failure rates for pensioners is south of 10%. So if you're going to go 10% and cut across, you're talking something between four and four and a half, and that is fairly consistent with most other international research pieces. So again, nothing new, but just a good reminder that the models work, they give you decent and consistent outcomes, um, and that actually 5% is the number beyond which you shouldn't be going. So that's the, the first one on incomes. The second one, um, which, so I, I told you people pick the wrong incomes and that's why it's a problem. The second one is people pick portfolios that are too conservative. So what we did in the model, um, and I should maybe have mentioned this before, is for every single income level, we backwards optimize the portfolio to find the highest probability of success. So when we use the Dimson, Marsh, and, and Staunton data set, we actually change dynamically the asset allocation at every single income point to give you the lowest growth portfolio that will still achieve the best possible result. And that's what I actually show you on this graph. So this is the growth assets for different income levels that you need to get that annuity over the line over 30 years. So the first clear thing, which I hope all of you know by now, is that real return is needed to get high incomes. And you can quickly see that our 40% equity portfolio, which seems to be so popular with living annuity investors in South Africa, actually only works up to about 25 and maybe 3% if you're lucky. If your income is bigger than that, you need more equity than 40 now, people are often surprised at this result, and they say, but I have pulled a 7% annuity over the line in the last 20 years. Uh, how come you're telling me that uh, actually, um, uh, you know, I need to be invested 75% in equities to get anything remotely around the 45 to 5%? It's because the last 20 years had exceptional performances on, on the stock market side. So the stock market bailed you out if you were an annuitant in the last 20 years. Uh, if we look at where the world economy is today, we're probably not that sure that it's going to bail you out in the next 20 years. So that's where the biggest challenge comes. Some people, you'd wonder, why does it flatten out at 75%, which is where the line tapers off? I stopped the line at 75%. The reality is if you leave the mathematical optimizer 
and you don't stop it, it will keep on increasing equity exposure. Again, highlighting how important real return is to solving the living annuity problem. You cannot solve the living annuity problem with a, a low real return solution. The math simply does not add up. Now that is a first hint as to what I'm going to go into in the next couple of slides around showing you the relative importance of volatility and real return in getting a positive annuity outcome, which really was the result that sort of surprised us. Um, but let's finish with this slide first. So the important thing is your equity exposure has to go up with your income. And the other interesting one is how big a component foreign exposure is. Now these are the classical mistakes which advisors and clients and people even taking default annuities potentially in the in future might be making. So if there are trustees or people here advising trustees on default annuities, these are the things which mean the difference between failure and success. If a default annuity is taken out with a 30% equity exposure, realize that it probably can't even pull a 2% annuity over the line in the long run. Realize that. I'm not, I'm not always sure that that awareness around the sensitivity between asset allocation and, and, and failure or success is understood by everybody, especially as we move into an era where in the default environment these things will become a lot more popular in the institutional retirement funds. Alright, so that's the asset allocation component. So I spoke about the two key issues, people picking incomes over five, why that's a problem. Secondly, people picking portfolios that does not have the necessary real return because they downweight the equity exposure. So, so, so what do you, how do you actually construct an optimized portfolio then for some type of a living annuity product? And when we started investigating this, we realized that clearly volatility and real return are both critical to getting an annuity over the line. Okay, so, 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 on my, so initially what I said here, growth assets are important. But we know that if you put stupid growth assets in, it won't work. So you put the whole illa in Bitcoin, then you know, you've upped the vol, but you haven't upped the real return. Okay, so, so vol and real return work in opposite directions. But to what extent, what, what is the relative force that the volatility and the real return of a well-diversified portfolio pulls against each other? And that was the result which is on here, which kind of surprised us. So what we did, and we did this both with the Dimson Staunton data set, I had to fiddle the numbers to get all the combinations right, and we did it with a number of the statistical simulations, and they gave us exactly the same result. Um, and, and this is the part which we found very interesting. So all we did was we simulated various real return and various real standard deviation portfolios in all of the models. And we asked the model to backwards calculate for us, given how we built our living annuity model, what is the maximum sustainable income draw from a particular portfolio? So this is a 5% real return, 10% volatility. It's about a 4% draw is what the model says. That's where your 10% failure rate starts to kick in. And then quite interestingly, if you keep the risk the same, but you just up the real return, then quite predictably it goes up. And if you look at the delta, across all the incomes, the delta, you lose a little bit of friction, which is like compound interest friction in the way you build the model. But essentially your whole real return is available for extra income. So when the income goes, the real return goes from five to six to seven to eight. Every time you almost get 1% extra sustainable income for the same probabilities of failure. Now that makes sense. Okay, so no prizes for that. If the, if the money, if there's extra income in the portfolio and it's not chewed up in fees, it's available as, as income for the pensioner. 
The more surprising result, though, was the, the volatility ratios. So if you keep the return the same, but all that you do is you up the volatility, for every 1% change in volatility, you lose about 30 basis points in sustainable income. So now you get the feeling for the relationship between real return and volatility. There's a roughly a ratio of 3 to 1. So you can add a better out or create a better outcome for an annuity with a higher real return only if the risk that you're adding is less than 3% for every 1% of real return, essentially. Um, and, and this starts to explain why when you look at optimized asset allocations, they don't always go in a straight line. And at certain points, your real return growth number actually comes down and then it goes up again. The, the relationship is not always positive. It's because some levels of, of return can only be added by creating or taking on excessive amounts of risk. And that excessive amount of risk actually reduces the effective real return for the client. So you've got to manage the volatility and the real return when you're trying to construct a portfolio for a living annuity client. So this for us was the interesting result. And the interesting thing is it doesn't matter what stats model you use or even if you use actual historical rolling data with all the autocorrelations, everything inside, it comes out virtually the same. Around about a 30 basis points for every 1% in volatility. Okay. So what does that mean in practice? How can that result be useful? Um, well, two immediate things that, that jump to mind. Now, my university professor who gave me honors for investments, which I failed, God bless his soul, at my first attempt, always told me that the world can be divided into people who believe in modern portfolio theory and those who don't. And that a lot of actuarial debates can be watered down to essentially the distinction between those two. So, so let me say then, if you are not a believer in modern portfolio theory in terms of the efficient frontier and long-term performance and risk numbers off the frontier not being possible in the long run, then this particular application does not apply to you. If, however, like me, you work for an active manager where there are beliefs that certain asset management styles or certain investment portfolio styles can have different volatility signatures over time, even though the return signatures are the same, maybe some of you work for multi-managers and you are well au fait with style blending, Style blending can be useful if you believe that you can create uh, an on-frontier performance with an off-frontier risk number. If you are able to, in the longer run, produce the same real return at a slightly lower level of risk, you can actually have a really good positive impact on an income-drawing investor. For a capital growth investor or a lump sum investor, volatility is just an annoyance. It doesn't really matter over 30 years. For an income investor, it does. Every 1% of volatility is 0.3% of extra income. And if you're thinking that sustainable income levels are only around 4%, it means every 1% volatility is actually almost worth 8% in RAND terms, uh, in terms of income for the client. So it, it is a material number. Um, the, other, the other big point to take note of is, in living annuity portfolios, excessive or unnecessary volatility is destructive. It's very destructive. It doesn't just disappear into the sunset over 30 years like if you were a lump sum investor where, where if you're a lump sum investor, the impact of excessive volatility isn't really an issue over 30 years. It is a substantial issue for annuities.
and should not be ignored. So that's the first one, potential applications in portfolio construction. And I'm, I think there's a lot of work that you can still do in this space to try and figure out um, you know, what, what are other applications. The second, the second one, and this is the one which actually we are running into more and more. So I think internationally in research, there's this big debate about trying to separate sequence of return risk and volatility, because you can't do anything about sequence of return risk, but it is your big enemy. But you can do something about volatility, even though the correlations are low, it's positive. If you can improve volatility, you improve the outcome for the living inheritance. So what we're seeing in the market at the moment is a barrage of advertising for smooth bonus products because they reduce the volatility and therefore they can improve the outcome for annuity investors. The logic doesn't always hold that way, but th that is how they're being sold. And that is quite an interesting application one can look at here. Paying an insurance company or any third-party uh, capital, third capital provider to smooth the returns on a portfolio, if that portfolio is going to be used in a living annuity, only makes sense if the charge for the smoothing is less than 30 basis points for every 1% volatility reduction. That's basically what this result means. So if someone offers you a product and they show you the historical returns and they, in their marketing material, highlight how much they reduce the volatility by the application of the smooth bonus overlay, that is great, but check what the charge was. And for every 1% of volatility, the charge cannot be, more, cannot be more than 30 basis points. Otherwise, the benefit of the smoothing has been taken up in the fees. So that's an interesting side application, but it only holds if you're dealing with living annuity investors. And by the way, this 1 to 3 ratio is only stable, it seems, in around the 2 to 7% income bands. As you move to extreme bands, where there's either no income or really high incomes, the relationship sensitivity goes up, um, and it actually goes up to infinity. So um, the, the band that we were interested in is the band in which people are actually investing, and in that band, the ratio is roughly one to three. That is the end of my slot. Any questions? Thank you, Jaco. I know that we are um, about to go for lunch, but really there must be a question or two. <laughs> There's a question, Arthur. Thank you very much, Jaco. Just want to ask you, and I look at the distribution of between local and offshore assets. Uh, the, the local asset proportion goes up and then goes down as time goes on. Just explain your assumptions about the returns in the two classes. So, the, so actually, the, it's the offshore one that goes up and then comes down. And it's actually a function. So what the optimizer model shows you that for low incomes, um, the real return and the volatility of offshore, when, when you blend the portfolio with SA bonds, actually gives a better outcome. So you can get the real return in exchange for lower volatility by adding offshore equity to SA bonds. If you add Domestic equity to asset bonds, you also get the real return, but the price you pay for it in volatility is higher. So initially, it adds all of the real return through offshore. And then at some point, because offshore equity has a lower total real return than domestic, it has to revert back to domestic because you're t asking it to deliver 6 and 7 and 8% real growth. And the only way it can do that is by actually allocating to domestic. Thank you. There's a question, really. Your modeling on the drawdown rates, have you done that for males and females separately or is it a mixture? 
No, so, so, we, so we specifically didn't put mortality, longevity, any of that into the, um, in, into the annuities because we wanted to actually isolate the investment drivers. Um, and if you stop adding mortality as an uncertainty, it, you know, you start having to pull the two apart. So what we assumed was a fixed term of 30 years, and, and all of those numbers are roughly based, um, based on that, which is about as much as people can, I think, expect from the retirement pots that they've accumulated at the moment. If you need more than 30 years' worth of income, you have to, I mean, it's just most products just can't do it. So we work with a fixed number. Any more questions? Hi, it's uh, John Anderson from Alexander Forbes. Um, uh, thanks a lot for your, your analysis. I just wanted to understand the, the model itself. You're saying you're using 30-year rolling returns and not annualized uh, returns where there's randomness um, you know, in the returns. So I just want to understand that a little bit more because, um, I mean, surely that would affect you know, the, um, the sensitivity, you know, of the um, uh, drawdowns and, and, and the, the, the risk associated with that. Um, what, what I found as well is, I mean, there definitely is a relationship if you increase return and, and risk uh, that you can actually improve outcomes, but there is a turning point beyond which, you know, adding extra growth assets and the volatility, it actually starts taking you you backwards. So I think that's definitely um, consistent. But I just wanted to understand the 30-year rolling versus annual, and has the full randomness been actually captured um, within that? So, so the actual, so the way that the the Dimson-Staunton um, simulation works is it actually assumes that people basically randomly retire in any year from 1900 to 1987. And it says, so you have people who could have retired, you have 87 people that could have retired, and it essentially measures that irrespective of which year you retired in, if from that point on forward you executed your particular investment strategy and your particular income strategy, what proportion of the 87 annuities would have failed? Um, so the 30-year the rollings that I show you are, are really shown to highlight more the risk that people face when we forget that investment markets don't just follow a six to eight year business cycle, they also follow a 30 year geopolitical cycle. And that's our definition in the case of annuity um, holders. That's really their uh, sequence of return risk is linked to what geopolitical and economic environment they retire in. And, and people <coughs> underestimate that. So that's the reason I showed the 30-year rollings. But when we did the actual simulations, people received their annual growth numbers in the actual model. So we essentially simulated 87 different pensioners and would they have succeeded or failed. Um, that was what we did in the Dimson-Staunton actual data model. For the statistical models, we assumed normal statistically produced investment returns from some model for each of the asset classes. Um, and, and, and the interesting thing was how close the results were in the end. Thank you. Craig's got a question. Thanks. It's Andrew Davison. Um, I was interested in your results from your own book of living annuitants. It sounds like you've got some useful data there. Have you, I mean, obviously, as you say, it's actually been quite a good period to have a living annuity since they've been around, but I do think that it would be useful to see failure rates, actual failure rates, but it's often quite tricky because the 
people have had to adjust their lifestyle, you don't see the actual failure. But are there any interesting insights that you actually have from your data, such as have incomes kept pace with inflation and things like that? And one of the other things that maybe you can comment on, which is quite strange, is in the OSISA stats around living annuities, they are very similar drawdown, average drawdowns, irrespective of age. And it's weird that they don't actually increase with age, as you would expect, because people have got shorter life expectancies. So it feels almost like advisors are taking a, a set-and-forget approach to the percentage drawdown. Yeah, I think, I th okay, so let's deal with it, with the two ones, uh, two issues separately. So the, so the, I mean, our living annuity book does in fact contain a, a really interesting set of things that we tend to carve up. You don't, if you don't know everything about a pensioner, it's very difficult to, to understand what is happening behind the scenes. I think you're quite right that corrective action when an annuity is failing takes various shapes. And if you don't know the actual pensioner, you don't know what they're doing, but you, you don't, perhaps you underpredict or overpredict failures. My, our experience had been that people are incredibly conservative when annuities start failing. So there's a small number of annuities that crash really quickly. Some of them crash by design, but most of them actually crash because that person was just woefully inadequately prepared from the start. But then a number of the danger zone living annuities somehow managed to eke by because the pensioner keeps on taking no in uh, increase. So it seems that the most popular strategy for an annuity that almost starts unsustainably ends up with the annuitant getting something very similar to a guarantee level annuity. They're just drawing the same income and somehow their support structure is making up for the gap between what they need and what the annuity is producing. There seems to be this fear about delving into capital, which I think has come from the press and the media, and, and it manifests in that way, that, that people would rather drop or keep the income stable then, then as, you, as you rightly say, you should be drawing 13, 14, 15% income by the time you're 80. Uh, but people seemingly want to avoid that. And the, the role that the advisor is playing in that outcome, I think, is a really interesting question. I, I don't know. Definitely something worth investigating. Um, on, the, on the topic of, of incomes and investment performances, I think the debate about why living annuities have been so popular relative to guarantee annuities I think there are probably two main drivers, the one being the issue around entrusting all your capital to one private sector insurance company, which in today's day and age people don't want to do, and it's been discussed today. But the second issue, which one shouldn't ignore, is that remember the last 20 years globally, we've seen an equity bull market and a bond bull market at the same time. Who benefits when that happens? Capital growth investors or people saving for retirement? Who really struggles in an environment with a flat yield curve? Income investors, they really struggle. So pensioners have had a really tough ride the last 20 years, which is why the relative perceived value offered by guarantee annuities have been so low, because the yields have been low, so the incomes are low, and at the same time the stock market is running ragged. So they're looking at stock market performance and they're looking to what they can get from the bond market on the guarantee side, and the things just don't stack up. The reality is, if you look at those 30-year trend graphs, is we could be in for the reverse. We could be in for a structural, normalized yield curve environment in the next 15 years, where rates actually, on average, globally go up. That is the reverse of what we've had for the last 20 years. And what that rolling 30-year graph shows you is that SA equity and foreign equity goes from CPI plus 11 to CPI plus 8. 
typically in a global rate rising cycle. That knocks 3% out of your engine, which explains why a 7% living annuity worked in the last 20 years, but a 4 or a 5% will barely work in all likelihood in the next. Thank you. Time for one more question. Okay, I think we're all pretty hungry and probably quite exhausted. <laughs> Uh, Yaku, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee, thanks very much for your efforts in putting this presentation together. The analysis that you've shared with us, um, that you and your colleagues have conducted, I think has been very informative. Uh, thank you very much for all you've done. A round of applause for Yaku. Thank you. Thank you.